Hello there, and welcome to Fuzz and Film. I'm Drew, I'm joined today by Scott. Hello. And, well, we're talking about films. We're weird like that. Well, I'm just weird, but... Uh, <laughs> Steven Spielberg's long and successful career has seen him gain many admirers, acolytes and devotees, including some people who quite clearly fancy themselves as the next Spielberg. Perhaps chief amongst the latter is New York filmmaker Jeffrey Jacob Abrams, whose admiration for Spielberg is well known and often evident in his work. If you can see anything past the lens flares anyway. <laughs> Spielberg needs no further introduction, but Abrams, of course, has distinguished himself by, along with Alex Kurtzman, Scott may have to bleep that name as it's one of the worst profanities in my vocabulary, <laughs> helping to forever ruin Star Trek as actually being about anything. With Abrams talking the talk but failing to walk the walk with his mystery box concept and making a Star Wars film notably and improbably worse than any of the prequels. To be fair to him, he has had a considerably more successful career as a producer, particularly in the unexpected resurrection of the Mission Impossible franchise, and we're not here today simply to attack Abrams. This last sentence may require a fact check. (laughs) What we are here for, though is to see if the pupil can match the teacher by looking at the director's two most directly comparable films, Spielberg's 1982 family adventure E.T. the Extraterrestrial and Abrams' first, and thus far only, original work, 2011's Super 8. Before crashing to E.T., Scott, anything to add? No? Not particularly, no. Fair enough. (laughs) Steven Spielberg, over his long and varied career, has had many notable successes and... Of course, a number of failures. But for a period from the mid-70s to the mid-80s, he could almost do no wrong and was responsible for a number of remarkably memorable, impactful and resonant films that created iconic characters and put a huge stamp on popular culture for the next three decades. Four, perhaps, even now. The last of these early touchstones was E.T. the Extraterrestrial, directed and produced by Spielberg and Kathleen Kennedy and written by Melissa Matheson. One October evening, some aliens are visiting California. Not to abduct humans, nor invert the relative positions of the innards and exteriors of cows, but to study plants. Harmless as they may be, though, some shadowy human figures are hunting them through the forest, and when they catch up with the aliens, the little critters flee for the safety of their spaceship and get the hell out of Dodge. Well, Los Angeles, but that's not a saying. (laughs) Unfortunately, though, one of their party is left behind. This creature, later to be known as E.T., seeks refuge in the home of 10-year-old Elliot, Henry Thomas, where he lives with his brother, Michael, Robert McNaughton, his sister Gertie, an impossibly cute Drew Barrymore, and his recently separated mother Mary, Dee Wallace. Finding the frightened alien, Elliot shelters him, eventually bringing his brother and sister into the secret. In the beginning, there were a lot of of fish-out-of-water antics as E.T. learns about earth, food and customs. Sadly, though, this is a place where the film fails, having its advanced intergalactic alien visitor, as so many other films have done, be about as smart as your average concussed spaniel when the script demands it. You know, for the lulls. But there is certainly a lot of entertainment derived from it, particularly when Elliot seemingly having developed a psychic bond with the critter, begins demonstrating the results of E.T.'s experimentation with alcohol while in the middle of school. E.T. is scared, 
lonely and homesick though, and soon simply sick. So Elliot and his siblings help him to create a communication device with which he can contact his colleagues. A phone of sorts with which he can call home. It's a slight possibility you're familiar with that line if you're not familiar with the film. All the while though, and unbeknownst to the children, the shadowy humans from the film's opening are prowling in the neighbourhood trying to locate the alien. And if you're not familiar with the film, I'll, I'll leave it there. to leave the, the final act as a surprise. E.T. is perhaps most remarkable as an evocation of childhood, most notably through its child's point of view, both figuratively and literally. With the majority of the film shot from child height, with Dee Wallace as the only adult face seen until the final act. That the child cast, particularly Henry Thomas's Elliot, are so natural and give such good performances is no small part of this success. And talking of success, that so many of Spielberg's most successful and enduring films were made in collaboration with John Williams is neither a surprise nor a coincidence. And E.T. is another iconic Williams score, with the hopeful, soaring melody of the flying theme being a standout. As with many Williams scores, though, there is an argument to be made that E.T. is too prescriptive and certainly too prevalent, but for the most part, it complements the story well. I watched E.T., uh, this time around, with the near surety that I had never actually seen it. And if I had, it certainly wasn't since the 1980s, but with a pretty good idea of its contents thanks to cultural osmosis. I also went in with a lot of expectation, not least because Scott over there had mentioned watching it not so long ago, and his praise was effusive. If there's a disappointment then, it's that it was merely very good, and not something magical, which is frankly what I was expecting whether that's due to not having childhood memories of it, or, perhaps more likely, that it's been robbed of some of its own power by being so impactful and therefore granting that power to the subsequent films it inspired and influenced, I don't know. However, it is still a technically accomplished, polished and well-acted yarn with a hell of a lot of heart. Here's a controversial opinion for you. E.T. is very good. (laughs) Steady, steady on, steady on. Yeah, a moment to recover from that. Yeah, I, I, I presume I must have watched this as a younger kid. I can't really remember it. I do remember watching it as a teen, thinking I was too cool for this kind of thing <laughs> and not finding it all that impressive at some point. And then I rewatched it about a year and a half ago when we did our episode on kids' shows. And yeah, it's just a terrific example of a kind of family adventure, I think. It is, uh, you know, it's probably a league above anything we spoke about in that episode to be fair it was all just seemed unfair to put it in that episode pretty much of a, a slap fight um yeah it's it's just a, a real classic performance uh, a, a classic film lots of really great performances from the kids um they, they feel like very real characters and uh, uh it's just a re- really charming adventure and the fact that it's not trying to put too much in the way of danger to the situation kind of makes it a lot more relatable in a number of ways, even when there is actual, you know, danger towards the end when you know they're invaded by people in spacesuits, which isn't, <laughs> I think, quite how uh, CDC operates would work. But anyway, they when they come in, they, they look weird and alien, far more alien than the alien itself does. And but even then, they're not exactly bad people. They're trying to help. At the end of the day, they don't want to see this little cre- creature die either. So um, yeah, it's, it just all hangs together really well, and it's I think stood up the test. Of very well for a film of its age obviously your effects work has come on leaps and bounds in these days but I don't think it could be done all that more effectively than they've done here Um, the bikes flying across the 
Sky is one of these iconic uh, moments of cinema that um, has been seen in adventure rides across the theme parks uh, across the world. So it, it all just works really well. I, I think it's a really, really good film. Certainly one of Spielberg's best and uh, just, a, just a tremendous little all-round work of entertainment. I just wish I could remember if I had seen it or not. I said, like, cultural osmosis and, like, clip shows and things. Like, mm-hmm. It's hard not to have got the broad strokes of E.T., yeah, but it's weird. Like I don't know if you were the same, Scott, but I know that I've very much inherited some opinions of something I mean, I'm not really known at the time from my parents, and I have clear memories of my mum in particular when I was a kid saying that ET wasn't very good, which I suspect means that we probably watched as a family and she didn't like it. Yeah, <laughs> I kind of internalised that as my opinion for a long time, so that's why I never really sought out rewatching without really realising that was why. Yeah. So I was quite enthusiastic about watching it this time and I, I didn't think it was quite as special as everybody else did. I just thought it was very good, but that's fine. Very good is is still, well, very good. Um, we'll take it, yeah. Yeah. But there's still there are lots of nice touches and I wonder how much children notice them. I, I notice it immediately, but I'm wondering as a child whether you'd sort of think like, yeah, well, that's how the world looks to me. The, the very pointed fact that everything's shot from the child's height and you don't see any adult faces even in the school like mm. Spielberg has taken great pains to make sure you never see the teacher's face yeah it's always just cropped out or obscured or something like uh, so it like focuses your mind on the children and also it's I say it's like the point of view of a child like that they're seeing other children's faces which are the same height as them and kind of I'm almost imagining it now like um like Charlie Brown like the adults are towering yeah. above and like and speaking words you can't really understand. Yeah. <laughs> Talking of Charlie Brown, though, um, so I've given myself a useful segue to something I wanted to mention. E.T., right? That's that's a pretty famous design now. Instantly recognisable. Yeah. Um, I would say it doesn't really look a great deal like anything else. Legendary film reviewer Roger D. Robert of the Chicago Sun-Times... In his 1982 review, or perhaps this may be his essay afterwards about why E.T. is one of the great films, but regardless says that E.T. looks a little like Snoopy. Um. (laughs) Yeah. Um. (laughs) Um is about as far as I could get down that line of reasoning. So I I can't quite process that, to be honest. It's been... It's been a tumultuous week. I'm not sure I've got the brain power to add that to it as well. I can't... I can't process that in any meaningful way. doesn't look anything like Snoopy. <laughs> yes, I know. Snoopy, notable dog. Looks like Famously a dog. Famously a dog. <laughs> Not an alien. Yes. But the closest I could come is like, okay, Snoopy's in profile, his body's small and the, the large head kind of protrudes um, and profile E.T. Very, very slightly similar. <laughs> but... I mean, like, I think Rodriguez was, like, quite a populist movie reviewer rather than, you know, like, a film critic. Um, so not an academic style one or anything. Mm. Um, but, I mean, he's had some influential opinions over the years. But I'm honestly thinking that at least anything from 1982 onwards ought to be seriously questioned. Yes, because um, apparently his eyes stopped working. <laughs> yes, um, which is kind of a problem for being um, involved in the review of the, such a visual medium. Mm. Looking a little like Snoopy. <laughs> yeah, so here's your public service announcement. Disregard any post-1982 Roger Ebert opinions. They're clearly at least faulty. <laughs> right, though, Scott. Let's move on to The Pupil, as it were, um, with Super 8. 
Yes, in Super 8, where Joel Courtney's Joel Lamb is a 14-year-old trying to get past the accidental death of his mother in their small Ohioan 1979-ian town, with his father, Kyle Chandler's deputy Jackson Lamb, not being a great deal of help, at least emotionally speaking. Joel's helping his best friend, Riley Griffiths' Charles, film their film for a local film festival, alongside his other friends, including Ellie Fanning's Alice, whom Joel's expressly forbidden from consorting with his father, blaming her father for the aforementioned accident. Such family drama goes mostly out of the window when the kids, filming one night on a borrowed Super 8 camera, witness a catastrophic train crash caused by their biology teacher. Why would he do such a thing? And what's the deal with these weird otherworldly metal cubes the train was carrying? As you've perhaps figured out by context, the train was transporting a now on the loose alien life form along with components of the ship that it arrived in, and he's trying to get home while the Air Force roll into town to recapture him, locking down the town under a veil of secrecy. Of course, it will take a bit of digging and discovery and a whole lot of adventure for the kids and the deputy to figure all this out. Now, we've probably got a lot to say about J.D. Adams, but to be clear, Super 8 is a film not without its flaws. And given that talking about them is sort of the point of this podcast, we'll get to them. But for me, at least, I think one overarching thing I'd like to say about Super 8 before any of that is that this is a great deal of fun. It's a very good blockbuster type film with a bunch of great character touches, particularly in the supporting cast. And perhaps it's table stakes these days, but there's some really nice CG action set pieces. However, if you want to nitpick it, you absolutely can, um, as to be fair, you can with most of the softer science fiction out there. Hell, E.T. has levitation and mystical healing in it, so in that context, powers of electromagnetism <laughs> aren't all that far out there. A more interesting nitpick is the tone of the alien encounters, which has to rather awkwardly turn on a dime from being one step away from the xenomorphs of aliens, an evil itesque spider that appears to be eating people, to a highly advanced empathetic alien by the end of it. I mean, it's sort of explained away in the text of it, but that logic never really gets matched to the emotion or the actions of it. But what Abrams handles better, and is probably the genesis of the new Spielberg nonsense, was the emotions and the relationships between the youngsters, which has deliberate echoes, some might say outright lifting, not just from E.T., but from the likes of the goodies, which has worked very well with a mostly fanning aside untested cast. Again, it's not perfect. The kid obsessed with blowing stuff up's character arc is that he likes to blow things up, which is rather less parabolic an arc than you would might hope for, <laughs> but it's entirely adequate for a minor supporting character, and both he and the rest of the crew uh, make for a fun Scooby gang. Of course, calling Abrams the new Spielberg was always a bit silly when the old Spielberg was still around, making mostly great films, but hindsight is twenty twenty, and we didn't know what Star Wars flavoured horrors awaited us. <laughs> On a track record, however, of this, his first Star Trek reboot, and perhaps a select reading of his other earlier writing and production credits, I can kind of see where the thinking was, and wouldn't have perhaps entirely disagreed with it at that point. Anyway, Super 8 is, for my money, a very entertaining film, and very much not The Rise of Skywalker. So, that's nice. I award it Super 8 out of Super 10. I suppose the good thing about The Rise of Skywalker is that many, many things aren't The Rise of Skywalker. So yes. we should really count our <laughs> blessings. Yes. This is the second day I've seen Super 8, and it's fine. I actually, um, I was enjoying it more, maybe the first half. Mm-hmm. The second half of the film, though, you know, in this ostensibly child-friendly film <laughs> that clearly is riffing off of things like The Goonies and Stand By Me is another one that's been mentioned. Mm-hmm. Um, yeah been talking about this film a lot um, and E.T. It then has a member of the United States military murdering a man by putting a poisonous injection in his blood and then the film five minutes before the apparent happy E.T. like ending the monster is observed to be eating a human. Yeah. 
it's like, like a, I'm like a drumstick. It's like for a while it forgets that it's a kids' film and turns into something more like Independence Day just because they could. Uh, but yeah. it's got some weird tonal shifts in it that I'm not entirely. It's certainly much less family friendly a film than ET is. Still, I think a decent adventure. But again, I'm, I'm probably coming at this from someone who watched this as an adult already. Yes. Um, but certainly, this is not something you could watch. You could put in front of a six year old the way you could with ET. Uh, very different kettles of fish in that regard. Yeah, it's rated a twelve A, and I, I even question that because that's particularly because anybody under twelve can go and see that. Uh, yeah with an adult because again man murdered by authority figure yes um, injured man in hospital setting murdered by authority figure like yes. that's not very child friendly and it's not ambiguous murdered yes um, <laughs> and then as i mentioned before the apparently heroic ending or the like the happy ending eating a human eating yeah. a human actually seen i mean Partially obscured, but seen eating human, not just mentioned, you know. <laughs> this is strange tonally. And I think that's my biggest problem with it, is that the tone is all over the place. Yeah. And it's just, it's also, it's not particularly cohesive. So th- there are bits of it I like, and I, I like for the most part the child cast, and I think that's its, it's biggest um, yeah, strong comparison point, yeah. to yeah. Stand By Me and E.T. And obviously not The Goonies, because The Goonies is appalling. <laughs> it's a terrible film. And in this film, everybody's not shouting all the time. So <laughs> it's an instant win over The Goonies. But it's the fact that yeah, the child cast, they're really good. Um, they feel quite natural. It's particularly uh, the main kid, Joel Courtney. But then like, there's a subplot where... Kyle Chandler's breaking out of prison and going to rescue the kids, but the kids rescued themselves, and that was all kind of pointless. <laughs> you can just cut that plot yeah. out entirely. Then it feels like there's like a lot of influences in there, and JJ Abrams didn't know which film to make. Mm, yeah, he wrote this, and I've thought before that JJ he's a really f- a very fine action director. Yeah, but can't write for peanuts. <laughs> yeah, yeah, that's it. That's one of the big problems of Rise of Skywalker, which he wrote, and it's appalling. Yeah. It's genuinely awful. In terms of, he can do action really well, and he, but he just can't do story, and I think that's the problem. Because there are some there are some really nice visual touches in this film. There's, like, the the scene when the, uh, they get their process film back from the start, when they're, the kids are um, looking at the film they made of the night of the train crash. Mm. And you see, just kind of slightly out of focus in the back of the shot, is the creature escaping, kind of almost like a big spider, like you mentioned, Scott, yeah. looking very like a kind of nineteen fifties monster movie. Like that's a really nice touch. And then there are the shots where you just start to see the um, the creature. To the first time you see it is in the reflection of a pool of petrol, mm-hmm. and and then after that you start just like seeing it too much, like yeah. Hasn't he learned anything? You don't show the creature that much. It's not really interesting design. Yes. Um, and aren't you the Cloverfield guy? <laughs> yes, uh, yes, and is exactly where it's going, Scott. His <laughs> protestations that this wasn't actually in the Cloverfield universe are not helped by the creature design. Yes. <laughs> also, a creature apparently motion capped by Bruce Greenwood. Why? <laughs> yes. Why? Uh, why motion? Not just Bruce Greenwood. Why motion captured by anybody? By yes. <laughs> Because I know that the idea behind this is that it's actually like an amalgamation of two films. Like one, 
was that um, it was a, wanted to do like a monster movie kind of film, and also wanted to do a a film about making super eight films. Yeah, and like neither one of its own was going to be enough, so he combined them. But it feels like he hasn't really thought of things through, and yeah, and so that's even in other ways to practical reasons. This film got on my wrong side almost from the very beginning with the train crash because the train crash is ridiculous. It's yeah. so over the top. Um, and I've read two things about what Abrams has said about it. One was that it was deliberately like, over the top to be an homage to like action films from like the 70s or something, or sci-fi films in the 70s. And the other thing was that the the train crash sequence wasn't storyboarded at all. Like, it's the second one I definitely believe. Yeah. <laughs> uh, because it's so over the top. Like, apparently, once it's the... the train starts crashing against momentum and kinetic <laughs> energy somehow. <laughs> but like, why particularly bothers me? Because first of all, it's, it go, there's too much of that sort of stuff, too much explosion, uh, too many explosions and that kind of thing. It's, it goes on for so long and it's just so loud and busy and like by the end of it, like, yeah, this is really dull now, get on with it. Yeah. But also, a crucial plot point at the beginning is that the... Um, and definitely it's a call back to like 1980s kids films because it's the, I'm pretty sure it's the, the high school teacher from Gremlins mm. that plays the the high school teacher here that crashes into the train. He drives headlong into a train with apparently a thousand miles per hour worth of kinetic energy, head first in, in his pickup truck, which bursts into flames immediately. But then apparently he is not burned and in fact alive yeah. to carry on the plot. It's like yeah, it's it's so disjointed in that way. It's like, clearly, he's more concerned about the action, and it's fitted in the story later because it doesn't make any sense. Yeah, <laughs> and there are a few bits like that, so it just feels again. So they're actually it's an enjoyable film. It's not brilliant, but it's enjoyable. Um, and there are really positive points in here, but I kind of just wish somebody else had written it. Yeah. And let him direct it, and maybe that would have worked out. But because what you'll notice is that Steven Spielberg hasn't written anything. Yeah, not since AI, which I don't think anyone's holding up as the uh, <laughs> the, the peak of his career. So yeah, yeah. I, admittedly, I quite like the AI. Um, even if like ET, it, it's why does it have the initialism and the uh, yeah <laughs> the um, abbreviation or the, uh, the explanation rather. But yeah, basically Spielberg doesn't write anything. Because um, he knows where his strengths lie, and I think that's a big problem to you, James. Is that he doesn't? Yeah, he, he does seem to bottom his own hype a bit too much. Going from like what he went through um, in his kind of later career, he, he's clearly taken on more and more responsibilities in filmmaking, and I don't think he's got the chops for it. To be honest, I don't think he's shown that he's a good enough writer. Really, uh, I don't think it's at the end of the day, his scripts are good enough, and he's had a few impossible hands. To be fair, and. So say what we will about the Star uh, Trek stuff, and we have at length in the past, but it's a bit of a poison chalice, really. You're never going to make anyone happy, but he did seem to go out of his way to make nobody happy with any of it. So um, uh, his career since Super 8 has been, I would say, largely downhill. Uh, I don't think there's been too many bright spots. The, the second Star Trek film wasn't that great either, and since then he's been on the uh, Star Wars train which ended up much like the train in Super 8 yeah, I think, see as a producer I think he's doing well because uh, the Mission Impossible franchise is actually now one of the best or possibly the best action franchise that there is uh, fair yes 
so I think you, there must and you know things like Morning Glory, which I found out today, he was a producer on. Yeah, that I mean that, that kind of yeah. thing would be just be you think it'd just be a kind of run of the mill rom com. Actually, that's a really good film. Yeah, in a um, a genre that I really don't particularly care for because they tend to be so samey. Um, not particularly inventive or maybe you might watch once never again Morning yeah. Glory stands out for being different in that genre in particular he's a producer of it so I think he really does have good ideas as a producer he's maybe helping to get things made uh, yeah. and the idea of the Cloverfield universe was good I just don't think <laughs> yes. it's executed on well because I've seen yeah. the Cloverfield paradox yeah. <laughs> I don't know whether maybe getting invited to do a TED talk when you give that very famous TED talk about the mystery box, it's like, that's maybe just gone straight to his head. Yes. And as yes. you say, he's got bought into his own hype. Because really, if he should have learned anything from the guy he adores, Steven Spielberg, it's like, you know, let other people do the writing. Yeah. Play to your strengths. It's clear now, and then you get to the combination of Star Wars, The Rise of Skywalker, that he wrote, produced, and directed. And it's the worst Star Wars film of, that there is. So. Yeah. I mean, that was not an um, easy thing to achieve, and so it's almost impressive. <laughs> yeah. I, I don't, in theory, hate the idea of his mystery box stuff, but I think the, the crucial thing he's missed is that even the mystery box can be a mystery, but it should have something inside it, where clearly he never has anything inside that mystery box. It is just more mystery in, <laughs> inside yes. it. So, so as a result, nothing can have a satisfactory answer, and that's really plagued uh, a lot of his work since then. But, um, yeah, I, I suppose getting back to Super 8, uh, it would be remiss not to mention that basically the same idea was done by Netflix for Stranger Things, give or take, and did it better, to be fair. Um, yes. I, um, there's a lot of moments in Super 8 where I was watching it thinking, you know, this, this if it was a series, would actually be quite a lot better. You could have, If you could have dragged out, certainly the early, um, just getting to know the kids and their investigations, all that kind of stuff, that seemed like it was screaming out to be expanded into its own little um, mini-series rather than uh, just rushing towards the ultimately disappointing action ending. Uh, so, yeah, uh, a recommendation for Super 8 is to watch Stranger Things instead if you haven't. But uh, I still think Super 8's okay, um, but yeah. Yeah, it's okay. It's fine. I don't regret having watched it again. But Stranger Things, it's quite interesting you mentioned it, Scott, because I was very struck um, by some artists to Stranger Things, both E.T. and Super 8. Um, E.T. Yeah. beginning, there's a lot of similarities there. But obviously, right, that was... Stranger Things was very much going for that aesthetic. Yes, as a callback to those films in particular, and ET would have been a big, um, a big touchstone for them. Um, for the whatever the name brothers are, I've forgotten the name. Russo? No, that's not right. The the, the Farrelly brothers, <laughs> Duffer brothers, Duffer brothers, Duffer yeah. brothers. Um, yeah, uh, where's it at the start of Super Eight? How I'm really sort of stuff, like how much it looked and felt like. Slightly earlier than Strange Things, but how much it looked and felt like Stranger Things. I'm mm. thinking, yeah, Stranger Things did basically the same thing, particularly with the the threat of like evil alien monsters. Or in this Super Eight's a bit mixed about whether they're actually evil or not. Um, yeah, but yeah, felt very very like it. But that did it better and didn't have as much governmental murder. <laughs> it had like the. It was like you said, a straight up monster that was pretending it was a good thing in Stranger Things, mm. and the government's doing experiments and stuff, but it didn't. I don't. It didn't feel quite as bold as that. And also, I don't think Stranger Things was quite pitched so much at children. 
It's got yeah. children in it, but that's yeah. Anyway, uh, it's fine. I just think J.J. Abrams in trying to ape someone else is like missed the things that they should have learned from them. Yeah, that's uh, <laughs> a fair point. Yeah, so, yeah, this is the same man who wrote Armageddon. You know, um, who decided that here's a smart script. Let, let's have some of the most incredibly skilled and gifted people on the planet replaced by drillers for two days because yes. you know. <laughs> Not that Armageddon is um, entirely without a merit. It's it's dumb, but it's f- um, fun dumb. Uh, <laughs> yes. So I'm trying to work my way to some sort of actual comparison or contrast here, and I'm just wittering now, so stuff. I think what we've established is, controversially, J.J. Abrams isn't as good as Steven Spielberg. There, we've said it. <laughs> I think what's quite weird about J.J. Abrams, I know he was working in TV for quite a while, so whether that's maybe, but he's not actually done all that many films. So not as a director. Yeah. So I can the Star Trek films he did. I actually really enjoy because they're good sci-fi action films. They're not Star Trek. Was my problem with them. Mm-hmm. And again, I blame him and Alex Kurtzman in particular. But the uh, for Abrams to come into Star Wars, that seemed to fit because that Star Wars is more about action than thinking. Yes. But what it turns out is that, you know, Super 8 wasn't the first time he was just trying to ape famous 1970s directors with beards. Yeah. Um, <laughs> because he, that's what he did with the Star Wars of Force Awakens. Like, yeah. oh, I'll just make George Lucas his film again. But, you know, less good. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> yes, and then let, let, let's assume and hope that 2019 is his last film ever because, honestly, he, he, he might consider getting worse than Rise of Skywalker a challenge. I don't want to see that. <laughs> Seems unlikely or impossible. <laughs> yes, but I mean, I thought it was impossible to get worse than Revenge of the Sith or Attack of the Clones, and he managed it, so... True. <laughs> yeah, uh, I think the last thing I'd just do, kind of reiterate, though, is like, how weird that Super 8 is the only film that he's done as a director area that's his film, um, mm. as much as it takes cues from lots of other things in the past, though. Because everything else has been like a franchise film or something. Yeah, yeah. Which is quite weird. It's like, how do you get enough of a reputation to like be asked to put your own stamp on a franchise when you haven't actually done anything but franchise films? True. Curious. Out with the scope of this particular episode, um, I guess, but I just I was struck by that looking again at his filmography today. Yeah, I mean, we're perhaps being a little unfair by not even mentioning any of his TV work, where, to be fair, he probably did more in the realms of building up a reputation for that kind of thing. I mean, I, I don't rate Lost at all, but can't deny that it was very successful and same with, to, to be with Alias and some other things. So it's not not like it's coming completely out of left field that he couldn't be asked to um, take some of that uh, success that he found in TV and bring that across to films as well. Yeah. Particularly given the episodic nature of the, that stuff as well. But still, yeah, um, certainly not as proven in the film industry as it was with TV at the time. Yeah, and again... If you're listening to this, Mr. Abrams, um, which is, of course, incredibly likely, mm-hmm. get someone else to do your writing for you. Yeah. Because then we might not have lines like, I've never had a teacher point a gun at me before, which <laughs> is exactly the sort of line any human would ever say. <laughs> uh, also, enough with the lens flares. They're not nice. Yes. That's it for this episode, which was probably longer than either of us expected going into it so hopefully not bored you if you want to get in contact with us you can do by um, email podcast at fudsonfilm.com or via twitter twitter.com slash fudsonfilm or at fudsonfilm yes 
Yeah. Uh, but we will be back with you at some point on our regular schedule, I would imagine, regardless of whenever this is. So, bye. Take care.